All right, hello. Welcome back to You Know What I've Been Wondering. I am Sarah. And I am Jane. Here we are, back again. <laughs> Here I am, once oh, you again. You thought we were gone. Once again. <laughs> falling to pieces. That's how I feel. Oh, no. I just, like, sometimes I hate the weekend because... You feel like there's, like... I feel like I have to do yeah. a million things, and it makes me so... Like, I just want to lay down, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm... I just want to take a minute. I get that. But all I do on the weekend is I give myself a million long list of chores to do. And then I get angry when I'm the when I feel like everyone else is get, is having fun. And I'm not. And it's like, it makes everything feel so unfair. Yeah. I have trouble seeing, like, past the weekend, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll get to Friday and I'll have, I will also have a to-do list. And I'll feel like I just have to get through Friday and just have to get through the weekend. And then my brain will be like, oh, wait, but life continues on Monday. Like, right. Right. Right, right. right. That makes sense. That does make sense. No, weekends can be hard because you just have like all these expectations of the stuff that you're going to do over the weekend. And then you put all this pressure on yourself and then you're like, wow, it was my weekend and I didn't do anything to relax or like actually take a break at all. Yeah. You and know? you feel like you're supposed to be feeling super happy and relaxed and having fun. Right. And so then I feel even worse because I don't feel that way. Yeah. I'm like, well, why can't I just have fun? I can't imagine what it must be like to be a parent who like kids have activities <laughs> on the weekend. It's so hard. It's so hard. So that's how we're doing. <laughs> do you have any other updates? Um, I don't think so. Great. I love that. Just taking some things off the oven in my bakery. <laughs> my bakery will not work. I know. I'm sorry that your bakery is having a hard time loading in this house. Maybe the house, maybe the, our Wi-Fi is trying to protect you. <laughs> like you're already addicted to Merge Dragons. Don't get addicted to Bakery Story 2. Right. <laughs> but it's, but I'm allowed. I'm and allowed. Yeah, we are. Well, you, because you don't have Merge Dragons. Right. Exactly. It's a, I'm permitted to get addicted to something else. You are. So. I appreciated when our other roommate, Kelsey, was telling me, like, this is a sign, Jane, that you shouldn't. And I said, but I need to make my Peridot cupcakes. And you said, she does. She does. She does <laughs> need to make her Peridot cupcakes. Just like, I need to make my sparkling cake. Oh, I'm in the, I'm doing that, too. If yeah. you let me. Yeah. Exactly. It's important. Oh, no. Now I'm bleeding. And you, no. Sarah banged her elbow on our microphone right before we started. Except it's, like, already dry. Like, yeah. it looks too thick. It's like a scab is developing. Right before my eyes. That's weird. I don't like that. We're yeah. just going to move on from there. And yeah. yeah. I have a pretty long topic, so we should get started. Okay. So, this week, it's our 50th episode. Mm-hmm. It's exciting news. So, this week, we get so to choose exciting. our own topics. I know. I can't wait. And I have no idea what you picked, so I'm looking forward to it. My topic's kind of a couple topics, but it's under one large umbrella. Okay. Of things that I've seen discussed on the internet in the past week that really piqued my interest scientifically and I wanted to kind of explain. So basically the topic is how our brains see color. Oh, that's cool. And I'm going to talk about two science color related things. Cool. The first one is the dress. Remember that from a couple years ago? The dress? Yes, I do Mm -hmm. remember. Um, Fun fact, I was a little late to find out about the dress, and I was hanging out with some friends our sophomore year of college, Mm -hmm. and because that's when it happened, one of my friends was looking at it on her phone, and my roommate was looking at it and getting super upset, 
because she was like, oh, those people online that are saying that it's black and blue. She was like so mad. And I didn't know about it. So I looked at the phone and I was like, why, what, why are you guys freaking out about that blue dress? Mm-hmm. And my roommate Julie got so mad at me yeah. because she honestly thought that like hundreds of people on the internet were like playing a prank on her. Oh. And she got so mad at me because she thought I was like in on the prank. Right. And she stormed to our shared room and closed the door and locked it behind her, locking me out. Oh my and god. And she wouldn't let me back in for like an hour. Oh my god. <laughs> it was crazy cuz she she really thought that I was like playing a mean joke on her. Right, right. But really you just Really I was just like saw. no, I just see a blue dress. And I still see a blue dress. I know there are some people who I think it changed for them. I've never seen it blue. I, I've never once. That's your, well, that's your brain. Yeah. All right. So the dress, I'm sure most of you know it, but it was this picture that went viral online because uh, a woman was shopping for a dress for a wedding and she texted a picture of it to a member of her family to see if they liked it or not. And she ended up buying the dress and wearing it to the wedding. You are telling me that you see this as blue and black. Yeah. Right now. Yeah, it's like a little bit faded. It looks like you put like a filter on it. Like one of those like old timey filters. No, even this, even this one all the way over here, I still see is white and gold. You really? Yeah. We're doing one that's like, that one is like, that one to me is. This is the closest to being blue and black, but it's still not. Mm. You know. Well, Well, I'll explain why. The picture ended up being posted on Tumblr and then it went viral because people were freaking out about it. So the people who saw black and blue, they thought there was some crazy internet hoax going on because they couldn't see gold and white and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So a majority of people saw gold and white. Yes. You're in the majority. Yes. The actual dress is black and blue. Now, I know people aren't even going to believe me when I say that. I did know that, but I still was like, what was it though? Like, (laughs) The owner of the dress uh, wore it on Ellen. And there are pictures online of her wearing it at the wedding. That she went to. And That's yeah, cool. and in other kind of, in other lightings, it looks the color that it is. Yeah. The reason why people saw gold and white is because of the way our brains interpret color. And this phenomenon called color constancy. Yeah. Now, yep, there she is on Ellen. Yeah, there she is on Ellen. Now, color constancy is how our brains interpret a color depending on the context in which we see it. Okay. So... Our listeners can't see this, but I'm going to show it to Sarah. This is a picture of a cube covered. It's like a Rubik's cube. Mm-hmm. And most of the col- of the little squares are like blue and green and yellow and red and white and yellow. One of them is brown. Mm-hmm. And then you can see the side of the cube. There's a different square. Yeah. Now, these two cubes are the same color. But they're not, Like, though. the exact same pigment is used in the pictures. To make each square. I also see this one as brown and this one as yellow. Is that what you see? Yeah, but I'm just confused about why all the other colors, like that red looks just like a little darker red, you know, like the blue, like I'm clear, I can clearly tell, oh, that's the same color. Mm -hmm. But the white, I'm like, that's white. It's just gray now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, the reason why they look like two different colors to us is because our brain sees the shadowy part of the cube and it registers all of the colors that are there and it understands like, oh, shadow makes things darker. In order to compensate, our brain interprets the square as being lighter than it is because the shadow is making that color that much darker and we need to be able to see it as brown. 
So our brain's like, I will lighten it so we understand it to be brown, but because of the like weird combination of pigments, it's like misfiring. This is what earlier she's, I was like going like holding my hand up to the computer. I was literally just trying to see the colors on their own to like see. It's really hard. I can still barely do it, but yes, out of context, I can see them being the same shade. But in context, that is yellow to me. But also, like, that's yellow. I don't like like that. It's it's really annoying and hard. Yeah. And also, because it's a picture that's on the internet, like, I don't know if I trust that someone just didn't dye that yellow. I promise you it's the same. Like, just now I was looking at it. But anyway. Okay. I promise you they're the same Uh, color. Okay. With the dress, there isn't much context around it there's not much we can see around the dress that's what i'm trying to say because the picture is so zoomed in now the color that you see depends on your individual perception of the environment around the dress people who see the dress who are in a room that is mostly lit blue or they're near a window with a blue sky are more likely to see golden white but also your brain is seeing golden white because your brain is interpreting the photo as being more shadowy than it is the brain compensates for the darkness you see around it okay and for the blue tinting and interprets the blue part as white and the black part as gold what was interesting to me is when you look at that picture like don't regardless of what color you see the dress as what how do you see the background um i think it looks to me like it's an overlit room like the exposure was way up on the room Mm. or so so to me it looks like she's in like like a makeup studio or something like that and like the dress is hanging up and so Mm. but it's like really it's really it's really it's it's not backlit it's overexposed Uh uh-huh yeah i see it as like i picture her in like a department store dressing room and there's a mirror behind her but see i don't see the mirror at all i don't i don't really see i can't really see anything behind her that's the problem it's just all light interesting yeah, like to me, all of that I can see like a line here. There is a line some, there. Yeah. Some stuff there, but I can't, I can't make out what that is at all. To me, it's just that's like, another kind of dress room. But I totally get what you're saying about the like makeup room lighting or mm-hmm. the over exaggerated lighting. People who don't see white and gold might be looking at the dress in a room that has artificial lighting or yellow lit lights, or their brains are just interpreting the photo as being more illuminated and therefore it doesn't need to compensate for shadow. So this is literally a picture of the dress being worn by the woman who bought it next to the bride at the wedding she bought it for. Mm -hmm. So that's like what it looks like. Mm -hmm. That's the picture on the website. That's the picture. I know. But like I still like this to me, her at her at the wedding, black and blue. Yeah. The stock photo, black and blue. This is white and gold. Like, I have no... Like, <laughs> Sarah's I, getting really mad at like, me Like, right I now. recognize that it's the same dress. I know it, but I've tried so many... I've tried all these tricks. People will be like, oh, yeah, you stare at a pinpoint of light, and then you look at the dress. Like, I've tried so many things. I've never seen it as blue and black. Now, here's the I've thing. tried editing it. Like, I've done everything. Well, here's the thing. Scientists say that the brains of people who see it as white and gold are working extra hard. Mm-hmm. your brain is misinterpreting the color and that people whose brains misinterpret color in this way, it, there is increased activity in the part of your brain that deals with decision making and attention. Okay. So your brain is literally going out of its way to give as much detail to the room around this dress as possible. Mm-hmm. And because of the details that your brain is 
inventing based on details it doesn't have mm-hmm. is putting more shadow on the dress than there is. And therefore your brain is like, oh, to compensate for that shadow, I need to turn it up to gold and white. I just like don't understand how something that is black became gold, you know? Uh, I think it's because <laughs> black is like technic, like this black specifically is on like a brown spectrum. Okay. Sometimes when I when I scroll through the pictures and I scroll really fast, then all of a sudden blue and black starts popping up. You know, like this. When I do this, I'm like, that could be blue and black. Oh, like that was, really fast. Yeah. You know? Or like if I go like this and I don't really look at it, that could be blue and black. But then when mm-hmm. I actually look at it, I'm like, no, that's just a darker white I, and gold. I can't see white and gold. But I it's, again, because my brain is not as good I at, wish I could step into your brain. And I wish I could like, step into yours. And just be like, see what I see. I know. <laughs> Yanny oh and Laurel, God. I feel like that whole situation was different. Because um, I've heard both Yanny and Laurel. Same, same. And that, I think, is just a different part of your brain. I think yeah. it's just the way that person is saying that word is hit, making diff- certain sounds. Well, because sounds the, the, the Yanny sound is a high-pitched person, yeah. but Laurel is is low. So the Yanny was like, Yanny. But <laughs> yeah. Laurel was Laurel. It was really low. Yeah. So that was also just about different frequencies. You yeah, know? And which one sticks out to you more, probably. Right. Yeah. Okay, so now let's talk about something else. Okay. <laughs> I feel like that John Mulaney bit where he's like, let's change the subject. Yeah, let's do it. So the human eye can distinguish approximately 10 million colors. Oh, wow. Now it does this because we have three receptors in our eyes called cones. And we have cones for mm-hmm. three different colors, red, green, and blue. And okay. all of the different colors that we see are just a combination of those cones picking up different colors and mixing them. Okay. If that makes any sense. Yeah. And um, by measuring the combined response, the combined responses, secondary colors are constructed. Okay. So every color that exists is just a combination of those three being picked up by our cones. For example, mm-hmm. yellow is what we see when red and green are combined. Oh. Which is interesting because we think of the primary colors as red, blue, and yellow, but that's for pigments. This is for light, if that yes. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember learning about this in um, in Physics for Life at Muhlenberg, <laughs> my science requirement. However, if the eye reports that both red and green receptors are being stimulated, the brain also tells itself that there is an absence of blue. Oh. Yes. So th- this not only helps us to interpret colors instantaneously, but it also allows our brain to make adjustments for the correct color temperature and i'll give an example of what that means uh for example if we were in a dark room and there were blue light bulbs and i were to bring in a paper that was what just a plain white sheet of paper Mm -hmm. the lighting from the room would make that paper blue okay like it would look blue to us but because we know that that paper is not blue we know that that is white our brain would still be like that's a white piece of paper okay so we might still see it as white, even though the light coming off of that paper is blue. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Our eyes also have persistence of vision, which means that after we see something, our receptors and our retinas don't instantly refresh that image and they will, they'll keep transmitting to the brain for a few milliseconds. And that's why if you see something with a super sharp contrast, like white letters on a black background and you look away or you close your eyes, you still might be able to see it for a little bit, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That image will still kind of be imprinted on your brain. Printed, not imprinted. Um, that's a <laughs> wolf. That's a Twilight, that's a twilight <laughs> reference. <laughs> and sometimes an imprint is left so you can still see it. Yes. 
is more of what I was actually trying to say. Mm -hmm. And there's a third thing that our brain can also do, but it's nearly impossible to achieve. But if your retina continue to send exactly the same signal to your brain for a very long period of time, Mm -hmm. eventually your brain would stop paying attention to it and you would almost develop a sort of blindness. Oh. So like you might be able to stop seeing a certain color as a certain color if you stare. But the reason why this is so hard to achieve is that your brain... Or is that your eyes just naturally move on their own right. very rapidly. And even if it's the most subtle movement, like the millicentimeter of a movement, yeah. it throws the whole thing off. So it's really hard to do. Interesting. And it would be temporary and, yeah. you know, like a, like not an actual blindness. But you know what I mean? Like your brain right. would stop registering something. Yeah, that would be really hard to train your eye to do. Now, because of all this, using those facts that we have about eyes and how our eyesight works exposing your eyes to a bright primary and secondary colors, we can saturate the corresponding cones and thus block out other signals. Then doing that, if you look at the opposite color on the color wheel, your brain will produce a color that is oversaturated and technically doesn't exist. Okay. So using all this information, the color magenta doesn't exist. Uh, how though you put magenta into your printer (laughs) that's one of the printer colors magenta is technically not a pigment it is something that your brain invents when it is trying to create a color that is between the colors red and violet it's literally what your brain so if we didn't look at it with our brains what would it look like i don't know um Well, I mean, it's hard to say because we can't look at it without our brains. Like, there's no way of knowing. I just don't understand what our brain is trying to do. So if we looked around the world, everything would either be green, blue, or red? No, no, no. Because there's more variation. Like, there's more... Okay, so the color that something is is determined by the wavelengths Mm -hmm. of, like, light hitting it. Yeah. And that is all on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. And technically, red and violet are on the opposite ends of that spectrum. And there's no wavelength of light that corresponds to magenta. Okay. But we are assigning that color okay. to something that we are like, mm, that's between red and or that's between red and violet. I don't know what it is. So our brain literally spits out magenta for no reason. Pink exists, uh, okay. but just magenta specifically does not. And it's super I that is what I've saw online in the past week and I was like, "Wait, what?" Yeah. Like magenta doesn't exist. Now, here's the thing. There are six colors that don't exist. Okay. Again, our brain, we are capable of seeing 10 million colors. Okay. But just not these six. These six are magenta, or some people call it super magenta. Super blue, super green, super red, super yellow, and super cyan. Okay. Now, I have a picture of all of these colors. Now, these are not the colors that don't exist. Okay. These colors all exist. Like It's a blue shade, a cyan shade, a green shade, a yellow shade, a red shade, a pinkish shade that's like technically magenta, I think. Now, the way that you can like really see these colors that quote unquote don't exist is by following the instructions that I said before. And that is exposing your eye to one of these colors and then quickly looking at the other. So if you spent a long time just staring at this blue and then you st- and then like real quick switch to yellow, I think it's hard when all of them are there at once. I think you'd need to really focus but like if you really stared at this blue and then you stared at the and then you quickly stared at the yellow, you would see super yellow, 
which is technically a color that doesn't exist. You're wearing blue light glasses right now. I wonder if that affects oh, anything. Yeah. And it's also really hard for me to isolate. Yeah. Color, like one of the colors. I put them the way that they are because the gallery that I was looking at, it's hard to switch between them with the size they have them. Stop opening tabs, Jane. <laughs> like, it's hard okay. to like, because you have to go from blue to yellow and yellow is the last one. So it's like, look at blue, look at blue, look at blue. And I really switched to yellow. Like you have to scroll. Oh, yeah. So that's why I put them little on my document here. Right. That makes sense. So you, but the color that you see when you do that is a shade of yellow that doesn't really exist in the world. Oh. And the same thing happens when you switch from yellow to blue. It makes the super blue that doesn't exist. If you switch from cyan to red, it makes the super red that doesn't exist and vice versa that's weird and the same thing with green to magenta and magenta to green that's weird so that is a super weird phenomenon that i just wanted to point out exists in the world yeah that is really really weird um and all of this the whole reason why our brain sees colors is so that we can identify what is food and what is not food Mm, that makes sense I think that's super interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. That that is why our eyes were like, we're going to give things color. Which, if you think about it, there's so much art that exists simply because we need to identify food. Like, it's this crazy thing. Yeah. I think it's super interesting. That is interesting. So those are the two internet phenomena that resolve revolving around color that I wanted to talk about for my topic. That was great. That was so interesting. Yeah. Isn't that weird? I'm a little freaked out and I'm a little bit like, mm, I don't really believe you, but okay. Like I not, thought that might be the case. Like, not that and I'm I sure people listening to this are going to be like, okay. Uh. Like I believe, it's not that I believe you, Jane, are lying to me and it's not that I don't believe science, but I'm just like, I don't know. That sounds like voodoo and <laughs> I'd rather not accept that as a fact, you know? <laughs> I'm just gonna. Leave I understand. It. I understand. I'm just gonna leave it. Ignore it because it's just too much for me to handle. Mm-hmm. More mm-hmm. is more so how I feel about it. You know. I I totally understand. Thank you for understanding. It's such a it's such a weird thing. It is. And there are a lot of things that I still kind of understand, but don't totally understand. You know. Yeah. I need to study color and light more in depth. Do you though? Like. No, like, it's not a thing I need for my life, oh, but it's something yeah, yeah. that like maybe I want to do. I don't know. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So for my middle segment, yay! I'm just gonna talk about some leapier fun facts. Yay! I want to hear them, but first I want to eat a cookie. Oh, go ahead. Eat a cookie. So I'm assuming the most people know why we have leap years, and that is l- just that a year is technically not exactly 365 days. Mm-hmm. It's 365 and about a quarter days. So in order to make up for that extra like quarter of a day, we tack on one day to a year every four years. Mm-hmm. And that is leap day, February 29th. Astronomically, I, like obviously every calendar has 365 days. And that was yes. not like the calendars, like 365 and a quarter. You're talking about astronomically. Yes. Yeah. Like the time that it takes for a the earth to mm-hmm. go around the sun once is technically 24 hours, 365 days, and then like another quarter of that. About. Yeah. It's not exactly an exact quarter. It's more like 0. 0.24. Right. And apparently in 3,000 years, we're going to have to readjust because that not exact quarter is going to be messing with some things. Oh. But I think it's just like, okay, well, we're going to have to reset. Mm-hmm. But it, we'll deal with that then, you know? Yeah. In 3,000 years. Yeah. I'm not worried a, about it now. That's a lit. I'm not worried about the quarter. I'm really yeah. not. <laughs> I'm really, it's not something I lie awake at night worrying yeah. about. That's many other things. <laughs> yeah. I'm <laughs> <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) So 
in order for something to be, in order for a year to be a leap year, Mm -hmm. it has to be divisible by four. (laughs) And here's the thing that really bugs me. And I don't really know or understand the reason for this. It can't be divisible by 100. Unless it's also divisible by 400. So the year 2000 was a leap year, but the year 2100 won't be a leap year. Because it's not divisible by... Because it's it's divisible by 4, but it's also divisible by... It's not divisible by 400. In order for a year that ends in a double zero to be a leap year, it has to be divisible by 400. Wait. Are we on track for 2100 to be a leap year? Well... If with if like we never the year skipped? the year two thousand ninety six will be a leap year, but then when we get to the year twenty one hundred, it won't be a leap year. But then twenty one oh four will be a leap year. So we're just gonna we're just gonna skip that one. Yeah, we're just gonna sit it out. Yeah. And why is that? I don't really know the reason. I it bothers me though. Does it bother you? Because it bothers me. And I couldn't find an exact reason for it, but everyone's like, yes, the rules that they set up when they decided to switch to the Gregorian calendar. And do leap years. They were like, but we're not going to do the year 2100, the year 2200, the year 2300. We will do 2400 because that's divisible by 400. That's crazy. I know. What? Doesn't that bother you? It bothers me. It bothers me. me. (sighs) But why though? I don't know. I think it's just, I think it's part of that thing about it not being a total exact quarter of a day. Right. So it's like, well, every every hundred years, we just won't do one. Unless it's 400 years. Okay. I, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> that's so weird. I, I think it. I think it's because it's just, that's, that is what it needs to mathematically work out. Because again, it's not exactly a quarter. It's like right. 0.24 something. I'm thinking about one of my students who was born on the leap day. And she could live to see 2100. Oh, jeez. So she could live to not have a birthday. <laughs> that's sad which is a terrible thing to say but yeah that's crazy so leap years were first they weren't invented in 1752 but uh more in in the year 1752 we switched from the julian calendar to the gregorian calendar other countries followed this calendar earlier, much earlier. Like yeah. Scotland, for example, was on the Gregorian calendar much earlier. Mm-hmm. But in 1752, America switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar. Okay. And therefore, it moved George Washington's birthday by 11 days from February 11th to February 22nd. What? But how? I think it's just because of the way our months were divided. That's crazy. Like, when we switched to the Gregorian calendar, we reassigned the number of days per month. Yeah. So that is why that happened. So it changed everyone's birthday, right? Not just... Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I know that seemed like a silly question, but But I was like... But, like, he was a person who was alive at that time and had to be like, oh, shoot, my birthday's on a different day now. His birthday is my half birthday. Oh. Under the Gregorian calendar. My half birthday, every single year, I'm like, I'm going to... Not do something for my half birthday, but like acknowledge it mm-hmm. that it is happening, and then every year I forget. Every February fourth, I forget. That's funny. Oh no, it's dumb. Another name for a leap year is a bisextile year. <laughs> <laughs> it's wow. a bisexual year. It's a bisexual year. <laughs> I don't know. On February twenty ninth, in the year twelve eighty eight, Scotland established that on this day and only this day, women can propose to men. 
Now, this mm-hmm. is the part about it that I think is funny. If a man refuses a woman's proposal on leap day, he's required to pay her a fine. That's so funny. <laughs> the fine is small, but it still exists. It's He has to give her either the amount of money to pay for the cost of this, or he has to buy her 12 pairs of gloves. <laughs> One That's pair funny. of gloves for every month so that she can hide the fact that she doesn't have a wedding ring on. Oh. It's, isn't that funny? That is really funny. People who were born on February 29th are all invited to join the Honor Society of Leap Year Day Babies. <laughs> That's cute. Which I wonder if you get an, like an official thing in the mail. You must. Yeah. And I wonder when you get it. If it's like a Harry Potter thing, like do you have to turn an age? Yeah. That's or if question. it just like gets sent to your parents when you're yeah, a Yeah, technically I have a second grader who's only two uh-huh. <laughs> as of today. Aww. Uh, in Scotland, Leap Day is considered an unlucky day to be born on, and it's just oh. an unlucky day in general, kind of like Friday the 13th. That makes sense. It's unlucky because you only get to celebrate it every four years. Yeah. And the Greeks consider it unlucky for couples to marry during a leap year, and especially unlucky to get married on a leap on leap day. And my last fun fact is that Leap Day is also St. Oswald's Day, which celebrates the he? Archbishop of York, who died on February 29th in the year 992. Oh, well, I'm sorry he died. <laughs> I'm happy, sure he was a pretty nice guy happy, if he was made a saint. Yeah, well, you But also he was that, the Archbishop like... of York. So maybe like he was kind of an important religious figure. Yeah. So I don't know if there's much he had to do. Right, exactly, exactly. Also, like, I'm just not going to blatantly trust that everyone was made a saint was a good person. Just because they were, like, maybe to the Christians they were a saint. But there are lots of Christians out there right now who I'm sure the Christians think are good people. And mm-hmm. who I would not say are saints. That's, you know? that's fair. You know? Mm-hmm. Okay. So cool. those are some Leap Day fun facts. That was really fun. That was yeah. a good time. I'm glad you enjoyed that. 992, that's a really long time ago. I know. It's a pretty happy death Not day. as long ago as Stonehenge was built, though! Not as long ago as Stonehenge was built. And it is a little It is a little bit less time since it was a Leap Day, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boo. <laughs> okay. Speaking of 992, and a long time ago. In a galaxy far, far away. In a galaxy far, far away. You can't look at my computer screen because we can't ruin the surprises. Okay, okay. So now it's my turn. I'm excited. I titled this document Sarah's Mystery Topic so that Shane wouldn't know. I also didn't put the topic on mine until I literally started talking about it. Yeah. (laughs) So I didn't want this to be spoiled. Right. Okay, so. You know that I love history, and Uh an area of history that I'm especially interested in is European medieval and Renaissance history. Mm -hmm. You know this well, and I'm sure I've mentioned it, but I studied abroad in Florence, Italy, so Uh naturally I've developed an interest in the Italian Renaissance. What we're talking about is related to the Italian Renaissance, but it's not, we're not talking about the Italian Renaissance. Um... And although you can probably name several Italian Renaissance artists, especially if you know the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, <laughs> um, today we're not talking about any artists. We're talking about one of the most famous families in history, the Medicis, and we're talking about oh. one specific member of the Medici family. Every Medici, or if you're going to say it the Italian way, Medici, mm-hmm. is worthy of their own episode. Like, I could do, a, I would love one day to do a whole podcast about this family. Because they're just, it's insane. Did you watch that series on them? That they did no, but I know ago? that I need to. It aired right when I got back from Florence. And That's I was when like, I watched it. Yeah, I was like, it's too, like, I was too emotional. I refused, what, immediately coming home from Florence, I refused to take in any Italian media, anything that was about Italy, mm-hmm. because I was so, like, 
I just wanted to cry all the time. I was like, I like couldn't go on Instagram. I couldn't look at my Instagrams. Like I just wanted to be back so bad. And then I never watched it, but I should. Um, I felt the same way when I was coming back. Like, I feel like our group that went abroad, we got so like emotionally attached to Italy in general. Yeah. I don't know if that's a common thing that happens when you go abroad, that you're, like, depressed when you come back because you're not abroad anymore. Yeah. But everyone from my study abroad group, we didn't go at the same time, but, like, you went, we went the same school year. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys kind of felt similar. Yeah. I just, like, coming back, I could not. There was just so much that I felt like I couldn't do because I just had this, like, ache to get back on the plane, you know, Mm -hmm. like, as soon as I possibly could. Um, so I have not watched the Medici show, but I probably should. But like I said, every every member is worth their own episode because they all have this really fascinating history. They were just super interesting people that did so much for the city of Florence and for Italy as a country in general. And they've mm-hmm. left a very important mark on history. Um, but today we're going to be discussing someone who actually didn't stay in Italy for much of her life. Um, and that is... Oh, a lady. Yeah, that is Catherine de' Medici. Oh, I... This is embarrassing, but I know her, but because of Rain, the yeah, show. That's exactly what we're going to be talking about. Yep. Um, <laughs> she's the one we're going to be talking about. It. Or as you would say her name in Italian, Caterina de' Medici. Oh. Um, just in case you're listening to this and you don't know who the Medicis are, the Medicis were the lords of Florence for most of the Italian Renaissance. Um, they rose to prominence as bankers and patron of the arts. The Medicis of also had a lot of connections to the papacy and produced four popes. To the Catholic Church. Wow. Yeah. And they rose to Four prominence in the, early 15th century, in the early 15th century and maintained their control in Tuscany until the mid-18th century. So at a very long reign and a lot of influence over <laughs> the general building of Italy as a whole, especially because they had such close ties to the Pope. Mm-hmm. These are just two fun facts to start with. We're mostly going to be talking about Catherine as a political figure, but this is two fun facts about her. Catherine is attributed with bringing the fork, parsley, artichokes, lettuce, broccoli, garden peas, pasta, and parmesan to France. The she, fork? Yeah, yeah. Uh, she also introduced duck a l'orange. What did they do to before? Spoons. But, like, how did they eat, like, vegetables and harder things? I don't did know. They it, just said, it said they brought the dining fork. Like, I think it used to all be, like, what you cooked with was the same thing you ate with. Oh. But, yeah, she brought the dining fork. Isn't that cool? Um, And she also introduced duck a l'orange and deviled eggs. As, like, (laughs) she, like, invented them culinarily. Wow. Yeah. Or not she, but she hired the chef that did. Yeah. You know. It was made for her court. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, she is suspected of witchcraft, which I'll get into why later. <laughs> Good for her. And um, she is said to have received a talisman from Notre Dame. Those oh. are just two fun facts about her. But well, we're just going to go, we're just going to go, I'm going to kind of tell her life story because I just think she has this crazy, interesting life. Yeah. And you'll see why. So mm. Catherine de Medici was born on April 13th, 1519, and she's such an Aries. Like, there's no <laughs> doubt in my mind. She was the daughter of Lorenzo. <laughs> Excuse me, sorry. You're fine. She was the daughter of Lorenzo II de' Medici, making her the great-granddaughter of Lorenzo the Magnificent, who was known for his patronage of little-known artists Botticelli, Leonardo da Vinci, and Michelangelo. You know, minor characters. You know what would be funny? What? If you had a kid and you made their middle name, like, The Magnificent or (laughs) The Great. So, like, Sarah the Magnificent Bedwell? Yeah. That would be really funny. 
That would be very funny. Well, um, no, Lorenzo the Magnificent is one, is one of, I would say, the two most important Medicis. The first one being Cosimo, who really uh-huh. started the whole Medici dynasty. And then Lorenzo the Magnificent, who is the patron of these obviously incredibly important Italian artists. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's who, like, she was directly descended from. Catherine's mother was Madeleine de la Tour d'Auvergne. Yeah. Duvernay? Like, Duvernay? I don't know how to say it. I just know that that director's name is Ava Duvernay. <laughs> du- okay, so, sure. But so, that's, I think it might be spelled differently. Yeah. She was the Countess of Boulogne, so she was French. Her parents had only been married a year when she was born, and their marriage was meant to secure an alliance between King Francis I and Lorenzo II's uncle, Pope Leo X, who was also one of Lorenzo the Magnificent's sons. Mm. Yeah. But unfortunately, Catherine's parents both lived very short lives. Before she was even a month old, both her parents had died. <gasps> they died within That's six... crazy! Yeah, they died within six days of each other. Oh my god. Yeah. While King Francis I wanted Catherine to be raised at the French court, Pope Leo X disagreed and he was put... And she was put in the care of her paternal grandmother, Alfonsina Orsini, who was the wife of Piero de' Medici, who was at the time the leader of Florence. Mm. But Alfonsina died when Catherine was only a year old, and so Catherine went to live in the Palazzo Medici Riccardi under the care of a new Medici Pope, Pope Clement VII. The Florentine people referred to her as the Duchessina, which means little duchess. Aww. Yeah, because she had a claim to an empty seat as the Duchy of Urbino. So she could have been, but it was unclaimed because she was literally, like, one. (laughs) (laughs) When Catherine was eight, in 1527, the Medici were overthrown in Florence by a new regime. The new regime placed Catherine in a series of convents, and the last of them, Santissima Annunziata della Marate, was her home for three years and has been described as, quote, the happiest time of her life. They didn't say why it was the happiest time of her life, but I think after what I tell you... You're going to understand why it was the happiest time. I think it was because everything was just simple. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Pope Clement crowned Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, he was kind of forced to in exchange for help taking back Florence in the name of the Medici. Mm-hmm. So even though they had previously, Italy had previously been at war with the Holy Roman Empire, the Pope had to give in to that because he was a Medici and one of the Medicis to have control of Florence. Yeah. Because at the time, Florence was the Republic, was in the Republic of Tuscany. It was the Republic of Florence, but really it was Tuscany. Yeah. Oh, I miss Tuscany. I know, me too. So Charles V laid siege to Rome, and to her horror, many called for Catherine to be killed, stripped naked, and chained to city walls. I want to emphasize that she was 11 years old oh when this happened. Oh my goodness. Others wanted her to become a concubine to the troops. However, Charles's siege was successful, and Catherine was not unharmed, and the city surrendered on August 12, 1530. So Pope Clement summoned Catherine to Rome, where he then set out to find her a husband. Catherine had extreme wealth, but no title. She was technically a commoner, but she was just very wealthy. Mm-hmm. But even so, suitors lined up for Catherine's hand in marriage, including James V of Scotland, father to our good dear friend, Mary Queen, Mary of, Scots, Queen of Scots. And they'll yeah. come back in later. But then Francis I offered his second son, Henry, Duke of Orléans, as a candidate, and Pope Clement jumped at the offer. Mm-hmm. I want to be very clear. We're going to meet a lot of Francis's, a lot of Henry's, and a lot of Louis's. <laughs> so if you get confused, just tell me, because I'm going to be giving them their titles, but there's just a lot of them. Okay. okay. There's just so many. In the middle of me doing this research, I was like, how dare 
France have 16 kings named Louis. <laughs> Get she new did. names. She said that to me. Get new names. <laughs> Truly. Everyone named Louis, get a new name. Get a new name. (laughs) Henry and Catherine were married in Marseille, both of them only 14 years old. Um, Their consummation was overseen by King Francis I, who said, quote, each had shown shown valor in the joust. Ew. (laughs) Which is, like, very creepy. I didn't like that. Catherine then saw little of her husband in the first year of their marriage, and unfortunately, Pope Clement VII died in 1534, only one year after the marriage, with Catherine's dowry unpaid. The Pope, which followed him, Pope Paul III, broke Italy's alliance with France and refused to acknowledge Catherine's standing in the French court. So he also refused to pay the dowry, and King Francis said, the girl has come to me stark naked. Because she had nothing... Nothing, no financials to offer mm-hmm. and no official title no land nothing like that for him for the king to control only three years into their marriage henry's older brother francis contracted a fever after a game of tennis and died which made henry the new dauphin and future king of france pressure surmounted on catherine to give birth to a child Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, her husband, Prince Henry, openly took mistresses. Yeah, didn't he have, like, an official one? Mm-hmm, he did. One of them gave birth to a daughter, which only added to the pressure for Catherine to have children. That mistress, Diane of Poitiers, would be his mistress that he devoted his life to for the rest of his life. It took ten years of marriage before Catherine gave birth to her son, Francis. Which, of course. Oh. So Fran- is very historically inaccurate, is what you're telling me. Yes. Which I knew. Yes, you knew this. Um, however, after giving birth to Francis, Catherine had no trouble conceiving again. She gave birth to eight children, oh, six geez. of whom survived inf- infancy. Some speculate that physician Jean Fernel gave the couple sexual advice in order to increase their chances of conceiving. Mm. Um, like literally, they said, like this article was like, yeah, there was something wrong with their organs. So he was like, if you switch the, if you switch this position, like it'll be better. Oh, yeah. What were they doing before? Either that or they were really bad at sex before. Yeah, other than that. But he, he, he knew what he was doing because he had a child with, with his someone mistress. Else, yeah. yeah. King Francis I died on March 31st, 1547. At 30 years old, on June 10th, 1549, Catherine became Queen Consort of France. Her marriage continued to face problems. King Henry II gave the Chateau of Chenonceau to his mistress, despite Catherine's obvious desire for it. Catherine had also no political influence, and Diane never saw Catherine as a threat to her relationship with the king. (laughs) Diane even encouraged the king to spend more time with his wife and sire more children. (laughs) Diane seems nice. Is she, though? (laughs) I mean, she seems like... She, she kind of was, was just like, on. your husband likes me better than you, you know? Like but she that, was encouraging him to spend more time with her. Well, just because he was, she was like, okay, like, I love you, but, like, you need to have more kids, you know? And uh-huh. I think it was more, because, but it was also, like, a game, because she was like, sure, spend time with her. I'm not worried about my position mm, in the court. Yeah. It was, it was kind of meant as, like, a dig, being like, you, you can have him as much as you want. He'll always come back to me. Uh. Yeah. In 1556, this is very tragic, Catherine almost died giving birth to twins, um, the surgeon saved Catherine by breaking the legs of Joan, one of the twins, who died in the womb. Aww. And then Victoria, the other twin, died seven weeks later. And after that, Catherine had no more children. Aww. It's so sad. That is sad. Meanwhile, Henry had appointed his childhood friend, Francis. Why are they all named, named Francis? Francis? The Duke of Guy. To, uh, to, he had named his childhood friend, Francis, the Duke of Guy. 
his sister, Mary of Gee, had married James V of Scotland and given birth yeah, to like another daughter, Mary. Queen of Scots. Yes. At five and a half, like, Mary I of Scots. Mm-hmm. Mary of Scots came to the French court and was officially promised the Dauphin, Francis, and Catherine de Medici raised Mary with her own children. So Mary, Queen of Scots, really grew up in France mm-hmm. under Catherine. In 1559, Henry signed a treaty with the Holy Roman Empire in England, ending a long period of Italian wars. This treaty was sealed with the wedding of Elizabeth, the king and queen's oldest daughter, to Philip II of Spain. Mm-hmm. At the wedding, there was a jousting tournament that changed the course of history. Mm-hmm. At his daughter's wedding, Henry II jousted sporting his mistress's house colors, black and white, right in front of his wife. Oh, that's rude. Yeah, it's rude. At his daughter's wedding. Oh, my God. Although he defeated the Dukes of Guise and Namor, the young Comte of Montgomery knocked Henry off his saddle. Embarrassed, the king insisted that he joust again, but this turned out to be a fatal mistake. Mm. Montgomery's lance pierced Henry in the face, and the scene was so bloody that Catherine, Diane, and Prince Francis all fainted. He was carried to the Chateau de Tournelle, where for 10 days his state fluctuated as he slowly lost his sight, speech, and mind. He died on July 10th, 1559, at the age of 40. And something shady to point out that I don't like is that Diane was too afraid to visit him because of his ghastly appearance. And so she never saw him again after that, which Mm -hmm. Catherine ridiculed her for. But she was, but she said she was too afraid to go out of fear that she would be cast out by Catherine. But there's not really any evidence to support that Catherine would have cast her out. Yeah. Following the death of her husband, Catherine de' Medici took a broken lance as her house emblem with the inscription Lacrime Hink Hink Dolor, which means from this come my years and my pain. She lived for 30 more years and never remarried. Oh, yeah. sounds like she was a real committed wife. She was. And he wasn't. Exactly. Her son, Francis II, was crowned king at only 15 years old. However, the Duke of Guise, Francis's father, Henry's friend, Henry II's mm-hmm. friend, was uh, seized power over Francis and his wife, Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, hold on. I've, I'm not saying this in a way that's helpful. So her son, Francis II, was crowned king at only 15 years old. Uh-huh. But but the Duke of Guise, Henry's friend, seized power over Francis and his new wife, Mary, Queen of Scots, mm. who is his own niece, and moved Ew. into the Louvre with them. To the Louvre? The Louvre was a palace. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. Louvre, the Louvre Palace. Catherine had to play the political game very carefully then because they she had someone who technically was her ally but treating her family like an enemy in her home. And she worked with the Guises out of necessity. Although Francis was old enough to rule, all of his official acts started with, quote, this being the good pleasure of the queen, my lady mother, and yeah. I also approvingly of every opinion that she holdeth and content and command that whatever. I'd be so annoyed if I were Mary Queen of Scots. Yeah. <laughs> like he's like he's like I do whatever my mom says literally <laughs> suddenly free to participate in politics for the first time Catherine began exploiting her new authority she forced Diane de Poitiers to hand over the crown jewels and return the Chateau de Chenonceau to the crown go for her yeah she did not directly stop the Guise the Guy brother from persecuting the Protestants which started a very long struggle between the Catholics and the Huguenots also known as Protestants, in Mm -hmm. France. The Protestants were forced to look for new leadership, which exacerbated political tensions and violence in France. Michel de l'Hôpital was appointed Chancellor of France, and he agreed with Catherine that there was no need to punish Protestants who worshipped privately and did not take up arms. 
This was publicly announced by Catherine, but ignored by Louis de Bourbon, Prince of Condé. Condé tried to raise an army in the fall of 1560, a Protestant army. Um, Catherine ordered him to court upon hearing that he was raising an army and had him arrested upon arrival. He was found guilty of offenses against the crown and sentenced to death, but was saved by the illness and death of King Francis II. But Catherine was a smart lady. Knowing her son was going to die, Catherine made a deal with the Prince of Condé's brother, Antoine de Bourbon, that he must renounce his regency over the future King Charles, mm-hmm. who would become Charles X, and was Catherine's second oldest son, in exchange for his brother's life. On December 5th, 1560, when Francis died, Catherine was named Governor of France, more powerful than ever before. Ooh. Yeah. Catherine coddled her son, Charles IX, new king of france who was only nine when he took the throne so little so little the poor kid cried at his coronation and refused to leave her side oh yeah and she would sleep in his bedchamber to watch over him catherine presided over his council decided policy and had total control of state business this is like in game of thrones when tommen becomes king essentially oh yeah yeah meanwhile the country was on the brink of a civil war she attempted to stay both religious parties with the cult with the Colcoy of Poissy, but it ended up in total failure. The did edict- a great job with these French names, by the way. I'm, like, trying my best. Yeah. This is based off of the French pronunciation I remember from taking, from taking French, mm-hmm. and, like, that some of these are locations I know. Yeah. The Edict of Saint-Germain, which granted more tolerance to the Protestant, also failed when the Duke of Guy led a massacre at a Huguenot worship in Vassy, which killed 40- 74 Protestants. Mm. So... She was making all these attempts, but the Duke of Guy was literally ruining it. Although so Guy annoying. called the massacre, quote, a regrettable accident, he was seen as a hero to Parisians, who were all very Catholic. This massacre caused the French Wars of Religion, which continued on and off for 30 years. Although Catherine was officially an ally of the Guises, she celebrated the Duke of Guy's death in 1563, and she said, quote, if Monsieur de Guy had perished sooner, peace would have been achieved more quickly. Ooh. Yeah. Shade. Yeah. The Catherine's got a, gonna have a lot of problems, had a lot of problems with the Guise, and she's gonna continue to have them. Right after his death, she passed the Edict of Amboise, which ended the Civil War for now. Mm-hmm. Even when Charles IX was declared of age to rule, he showed little interest in government. It was left to Catherine to secure peace with the Huguenots, whom she did not trust to stay pacified. So civil unrest and bloodshed continued. The Huguenots fortified a stronghold. Jeanne de Albret, the Protestant Queen of Navarre, who was the wife of Antoine de Bourbon, who negotiated his brother's release oh. at the death of Francis II. Are you connecting all this together? Yes, I okay. think so. Okay. Wrote to Catherine, quote, We have come to the determination to die, all of us, rather than abandon our God and our religion. Ooh. Catherine's only choice was to settle was to settle with advantageous marriages for her children. Mm-hmm. Charles IX went on to marry Elizabeth of Austria, daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor. She attempted to arrange a marriage between one of her younger sons and Elizabeth I of England. Oh, hey, we know her. Yeah, we know her. But most importantly, she decided to marry her youngest daughter, Margaret, to Henry III of Navarre, Jean's son, and a prominent Protestant. Mm-hmm. Although this marriage appeared to be a political maneuver to unite the Protestants and Catholics, there were more vicious plans <gasps> behind it all. Margaret was actually in love with the Duke of Guy's son, Henry of Guy. 
Catherine was furious at her daughter for this, considering the trouble the her his father had caused. Yeah. King Charles the Ninth, under Catherine's instruction, beat Margaret into submission until she swore she would never see Henry of Guy again. Ooh. Mm-hmm. And Jean agreed to let her son marry Margaret if he could remain a Huguenot. Mm-hmm. Once the wedding was secure, Jean actually visited Paris to buy clothes for her son's wedding, but mysteriously fell ill and died before the <gasps> wedding took place. Some suspect that Catherine actually murdered Jean using a pair of poison gloves. Ooh! And based off of what's about to happen next, it would not be out of character. So Margaret married Henry of Navarre on August 18th, 1572 at Notre Dame. The initial ceremony actually had to take place on the stairs because Henry was not permitted inside. Ooh. Because he was not Catholic. And so they had their wedding out on the stairs and then everyone else went inside for Catholic mass. mass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So three days after the wedding... Keep in mind, this is a major wedding uniting Catholics and Protestants. So many prominent Protestants had come into Paris for the wedding. Mm -hmm. And one of them was Admiral Coligny, um, who was a leader in the sort of Protestant revolution that was happening. And he survived an attempted assassination. Some believe that Catherine ordered this assassination to get rid of a notable Huguenot figure. On that day, when Catherine received the news, she did not emotionally react and then appeared teary-eyed to Coligny and tried to blame it on the Guise. Ooh. <laughs> but since it failed, Catherine and the court worried that the Huguenots, even if it hadn't failed, they still worried that the Huguenots would stage an uprising in Paris for revenge. So only five days after the wedding, Charles IX, likely with the approval of his mother, ordered his guards to kill all of the Huguenots in Paris that were there for his sister's wedding. Um, there's I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about this, but you should listen to the podcast Noble Blood. It's hosted by Dana Schwartz, and she writes it. And she did an episode specifically about Margaret and specifically about this massacre. And she goes into a lot of, like, really beautiful detail about what happened that day and, like, the specific story of this massacre, mm-hmm. um, which is why where I initially got the inspiration to cover the life of Catherine. But it's a very interesting story. And I believe it's episode – I'm going to find out what episode it is right now. It's episode 11, titled The Wedding Ended in Blood. Oh. Yeah. A lot of this is making me think about Game of Thrones. Yeah. I think Game of Thrones definitely. Well, I know Game of Thrones borrowed a lot from the history of, like, the English monarchy. Right, and, and like, War of the, the Roses. European monarchy. Yeah, yeah. But I thought it was more War of the Roses than this time. Yeah. Which, again, I think of those as being so far apart. But they're really not. That's only, like, a generation or two. Yeah. I mean, like, Elizabeth the first, first is queen. around, yeah. and her father was Henry VIII, and he was, like, the... Wasn't he, like, the first king after the War of the Roses, or... No, 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 no. No. No, but he was not long after. He was not long after. No, definitely not. Um, like, the early Medici days were the same days as the War of the Roses. Yeah. For geez. sure. Charles IX orders the murder of all the Huguenots in Paris. Over the course of a week, up to 30,000 Protestants were slaughtered in Paris, and that's Paris alone. This massacre spread throughout all of France. So just thousands and thousands of thousands of Protestants died as a result of what is now called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Oh, I've heard of that. Mm -hmm. Henry of Navarre was forced to kneel before the altar and convert to a Roman Catholic. It is said that when he did this, Catherine turned to her ambassadors and laughed, earning her reputation forever as the wicked Italian queen to the Protestants. That's how they see her. Charles IX died at only 23. His last words were, oh, my mother. That's really funny. He's got mommy issues. <laughs> He's got like really big mommy issues. Severe. Oh my mother. Severe mommy issues. Was he ever married? 
Yes, he did marry, but I don't think he... No, his he, poor wife. He never had children. Um, the day before his death, he named Catherine Regent of France. Of course he did. Of course. She was forced to call her favorite son. Her None of these are even her favorite sons. Okay, <laughs> like, let's just emphasize that. Henry, the Duke of Anjou, recently elected king of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth to France. So now he was already king somewhere else and she was like, you have to come be king. <laughs> Henry married, but had trouble producing an heir. Therefore, Catherine's youngest son, Francis, really played up his role. Does she have multiple sons named Francis? Mm-hmm. Oh my god! It's like so frustrating, right? Like, it's crazy. Um, he really played up his role as heir to the throne. He exploited the crown and Catherine worked tirelessly to control him. She is once known to have given him a six-hour lecture on controlling his behavior. Which, can you imagine your mom just railing into you for six hours because you can't stop partying? <laughs> yeah, she had fr- her sons were Francis II of France, Elizabeth, <laughs> Queen of Spain, Claude, Duchess of Lorraine, Louis, Duke of Orléans, Charles IX of France, Henry III of France, Margaret, Queen of France, which I'll get to later, Mm -hmm. and Francis, Duke of Anjou, Princess Joan, and Princess Victoria, who both died. So yes, she had two kids named named Francis. (laughs) Like, get new names. It's so aggravating. Especially when you live in France, and they're Francis of France. It's just too much France. It's too much, yeah. (laughs) It's too much French pride. Her daughter, Margaret, is well beginning to cause problems. Margaret is the one whose husband was forced to convert to Catholicism to save him from the mm-hmm. Bar- St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Um, she had taken lovers and abandoned her husband, oh. leaving, returning to the French court and refusing to leave to go be with him. So Catherine forced Henry III to lock up one of Margaret's lovers, um, her favorite one, and have him executed. And although Catherine wanted it, the execution to happen in front of Margaret, it didn't, which made her sad. Um, following this incident, Catherine cut Margaret out of her will and never saw her again. Ah! Isn't that crazy? Because she didn't follow her duty. Unfortunately for Catherine, she was not able to control Henry like she had Francis II and Charles IX. She did, however, still play a diplomatic role in his government. In 1578, she took on the task of pacifying the South. At the age of 59, she embarked on an 18-month journey around the South of France to meet Huguenot leaders face-to-face. Her efforts won Catherine new respect from the French people for this reason but this upset many roman catholics henry iii was forced to go to war with them but he was unable to fight them and forced to give in to their demands which was again restricting the rights of protestants which is something catherine had worked to undo Mm -hmm. um not because she particularly felt sympathetic to the protestants but she felt she felt it was her duty to do so because she wanted to prevent another war you want to hear a joke sure why did the superhero flush the toilet it was his duty. <laughs> How dare you throw that joke in the middle of this? I've had like three kids tell me that joke in the past week, and you kept saying the word duty, so. Okay, well, here we are. Um, Henry III went into hiding and, and to pray and left <laughs> to pick up the mess for 40 days. He disappeared and prayed, and when he emerged, he hired Swiss troops to defend Paris from the incoming Catholic League. On September 8th, 1588, Henry thanked Catherine for all she had done for France, but effectively ended her power. Mm. And then in December 1588, they murdered the leader of the Catholics, the new Duke of Guy. <laughs> it ain't good to be the Duke of Guy. And immediately <laughs> after, he begged his mother for forgiveness because he knew this would unravel all the work she had done to, like, stay the fighting between yeah. the two religious parties. 
Um, Catherine would sh- was sure that this would bring about her son's end. Her third son. Her third king's son. Catherine died only a few days later on January 5th, 1589. It is said, quote, those close to her believed that her life had been shortened by the, the dish. Her life had been shortened by the displeasure over her son's deed. Oh. Or die of disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> when you're Catherine de Medici, you do. Yeah. Upon her death, she was given little consideration since Paris was under the control of her enemies. So she wasn't oh. giving like a real funeral or anything like that. And her son, Henry III, was stabbed to death eight months later. Aww. And ironically enough, Catherine's daughter, Margaret, the daughter that she had written out of her will, became queen consort to France when her <laughs> husband, Henry of Navarre, who had been forced to convert to Catholicism, became King Henry IV of France. Because the Catholics, the only heirs to the throne, all the other heirs to the throne, were all Protestant. So they Aww. passed over all of them in order to have a Catholic king. <laughs> a catholic king that they had previously oh, forced to convert out of into catholicism so margaret became the queen consort to france and this is the beginning of the bourbon dynasty oh yeah. henry of navarre wrote of catherine i ask you what could a woman do left by the death of her husband with five little children on her arms and two families of france who were thinking of grasping the crown our own the bourbons and the Guise." Was she not compelled to play strange parts to deceive the first one and then the other in order to guard, as she did, her sons, who successfully reigned through the wise conduct of that shrewd woman? I am surprised she never did worse. <laughs> and that's the story of Catherine de' Medici. I don't know. I kind of, I kind of love her. Like, I don't know. She's kind of evil, but like also like powerful in a cool way. Yeah, it's, I don't, she yeah. gives me a real Cersei Lannister vibes. She does. But I almost like her better because Cersei, I'm, I like. I never was like Cersei could maybe be a good person. Like I had sympathy I, for her at times. But. Yeah, I think as I said when we were watching Game of Thrones, I think Cersei Lannister is such an interesting character because she does terrible things, but the show would suffer without her there. Yeah, you know, like she was such a strong, compelling character, mm-hmm. and she was so. She was so sympathetic that when she did something terrible, it was like you were always on the brink of her doing the right thing. And mm-hmm. I think I think what's interesting about Catherine's Catherine de Medici's legacy is that she was always so on the brink of doing the right thing and at a time when everyone was fighting and there was so much bloodshed. Mm-hmm. Like it is speculated whether or not she ordered that massacre and a massacre is a terrible thing. But it is interesting how much oh, of her true. life yeah, she did. about that part. <laughs> it's like, it's interesting how much of her life she devoted to, like, the betterment of France. And not necessarily for her sons. Like, she wasn't like, it, like, Cersei so much was like, I just want a good life for my kids. Yeah. But Catherine, it was so like, I want power because I know how to make the right call. It was, mm-hmm. it's so, I just, I just think it's so compelling and so interesting. And it's a figure that because she was never... Like, she was queen consort, but she wasn't queen in the way that, like, Elizabeth I was queen, Yeah, you know? She wasn't queen regent. That, I just think it's so interesting that we never hear about her, and yet she had all this power and all this influence, and all these crazy things happened truly under her control, even yeah. though it was the guise of somebody else's control. Um, Like, talk about, talk about a matriarch, you know? Yeah. <laughs> So fascinating. And again, she's a Medici that left that left Italy. But it's so... And all, also coming from such a powerful family as well. Absolutely. I just think it's such an interesting story. Yeah. She's such a fascinating woman. She really is. Yeah. 
Much like Catherine the Great, who we just watched the HBO series Oh about. my gosh, I never understood why she was so into that guy. <laughs> that was the entire plot, was her being so into this guy. Noble Blood did an episode about, specifically, Noble Blood always does an episode about, like, one specific event, not, like, a specific person, and she did it about Catherine the Great usurping her husband. Mm. Super interesting. And also, like, really emphasize what a terrible person Peter the Third was. Like, he was a bad king, or a bad emperor. Then she, maybe it's good she got rid of him. And, like, what what the HBO miniseries about Catherine the Great doesn't really grow, go into is that she was very liberal. Like, mm-hmm. she really, and she really solidified Russia as a great world power and brought them into a modern era mm-hmm. that everyone else had been pushing back against. And that was really important. So, like, Catherine the Great, like, what I got out of the miniseries is that she was really terrible to her son. <laughs> And that she had a lot time. of, and that she had a lot of sex, but like she also was a very important political figure, yeah. and it didn't really touch into the politics of it, which is why talking about this Catherine, like yes, she was a patient of the arts and she did lots of artsy things, but also she was like a very important political figure, yeah, you know, and it's important to talk about women in politics. It just is, yeah. So here we are. Although Peter the Third of Russia had um a mistress, had a mistress named Elizabeth Warrenova. <gasps> When I heard that, I was like, what? Ah! Isn't that crazy? <laughs> that is funny. I was like, Elizabeth Warren? Doesn't Ova mean like, like no Warren idea. Ova means like her father's name was Warren or something? Yes, I think so. So like her name was like really Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that funny? That is funny. It's very funny. So that is everything. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at YKWIBW Podcast. You can check out our website, I've been wondering.com. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us on Anchor straight through the link in our bio or consider leaving us a five star review on iTunes. And finally, if you have something that you've been wondering, you can email us at I've been wondering podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to put it on our show. Mm-hmm. We would. We really, really would. Jean, you want to know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering, Sarah? I said that with a lot more words than I had to. So, at the end of this month, a movie's coming out that I'm so <laughs> jazzed about. Because growing up, it was actually my one of my favorite Disney movies. Oh. Until, really until Frozen came out. And that movie is Mulan. Oh. Now, I've heard that this movie is going to be truer. More historically and To, yeah, in the original legend. Accurate. More but so, yeah. I don't actually know a lot about the original legend. So, I would like for you to talk about the real legend and influence mm-hmm. of Mulan, Mulan in China. That sounds fun. I would love to. Yay. I'll tell you all about it. I have an idea for a topic, but it might be kind of big. That's fine. I like big topics. Or not big, but... Can you talk a little bit about... Um, Are you going to say oh, the title Sarah- of the show? <laughs> you know one thing I've been thinking about lately that you might explain... No, kidding. <laughs> if we had the world's longest title. Truly. Do you know what I've been wondering? What? What? <laughs> what? What? <laughs> I've been wondering about pets. And, like, who were the first people to domesticate animals as pets? Mm. And like when we're house cats versus a thing. Yeah. I think that's a good question. You know, like when did we first like, I saw one tweet recently that was like a wolf. It was like, "Mm, I smell something near that campfire, campfire. And then like a hundred years later, like it's like a little dachshund in like a frog outfit. And it was like, 
this was an evolutionary mistake. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really, that's really funny. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. About pets, why we got them. Do they pets. have any health benefits? Oh, or like, yeah. li- benefits for our lives? Yeah. Other than just being cute? Which yeah, they are. Which they are. For sure. All right. Thank you so much for listening. This is You Know What I've Been Wondering.